Welcome back to Podcast 38 of 2023. I'm your host, Kiev O'Neill. You can follow me on Twitter at OBKiev. Follow us at The Ozbreakers and follow us on social media slash The Ozbreakers. This episode is being brought to you by Betfred Sports. For $250 worth of free bets, please visit Betfred and use the promo code ODDS23. Terms, conditions, and location apply. If you'd like to support The Ozbreakers and benefit from our premium plays, please visit theozbreakers.com. Click shop and become a member. Pick any of our premium cappers to get their plays before the line moves. You can also support us on patreon.com. If nothing else, please visit the Ozbreakers and become a free picks and telegram subscriber. The NBA has just finished. Nailed that under last night. I, I took it at 208 and it went all the way up to 210. By close, I was surprised. I thought we were going to see some sharp money being that it's a final game, a desperation game on the under, and it didn't happen. I scratched my head. I'm like, why is this not going lower? Well, I didn't. Actually, I did invest a little bit more when I hit 210, but I didn't give it out again. But it's just the situation. You do not bet the over in elimination games. You do not bet the over in finals. You don't do that. It's not how it works, my friends. It goes under. But anyways, the good news is that we finished out pretty well in the NBA. And you know my season doesn't start to the playoffs. 63% sides and totals, 22 and 13, up 6.5 units at a 14% ROI. So really happy about my NBA results. I know a lot of people had a tough year in the NBA. And if you saw the officiating in well basically the whole playoffs but especially that kick from jimmy butler to gordon and they gave the free free throws to butler you know how silly the nba can actually be but um you pick your spots you do we make smart choices like situational handle handicapping rather than metric handicapping i think the nba is kind of perfect for that you know especially just like this last example taking the under in the elimination game you know terrible line value great play is what i think that under 208 was and real happy to be positive this year in the nba last year i did the same thing but i was about even i kind of got in a little trouble during the conference finals made a few too many bets i I stuck to try to try to do one or two bets a game and uh it actually worked out for me we'll see if that's sustainable but i'm going to continue to do that and hopefully bring value to my monthly Oddsbreakers members. And if you're not a member, check me out at theoddsbreakers.com. You can get my yearly subscription there. Get all my plays for one year. It's less than 100 bucks if you pay a year in advance. You can also get my monthly. That way you get all of my UFC. UFC was great last weekend, up two units. And uh, just was a wonderful weekend in general because we also hit our uh, Belmont Stakes free plays as well. Uh, getting about a $300 profit for a little bit less than a $300 ticket. So all in all worked out pretty well for free play members as well as odds breakers subscribers to my profile. So thank you so much for all you subscribers out there that keep us going here. We will also be having some new features at theoddsbreakers.com, actual models that we'll be sharing with you, models I've used for the past few years i just keep tweaking it until it gets 
better and better in my opinion. And the way you know it's better, it's because it's mass matching for most of the games, the exact number where the market is kind of falling to after the lines open and the players decide where the lines should go. You know, so that's when you know that you're pretty accurate based upon the consolidated opinion. Now, obviously, we don't agree on everything, and that's why we sports bet. If we always agreed upon the market, we wouldn't sports bet, right? Uh, for every single game, we pick our spots. We pick things that were overvalued and undervalued, and that's where we add our actual handicaps minus just pure metric models. But I'm going to be sharing that with premium members. Uh, we're going to be critiquing it. We're going to be tracking things as well to make sure that everybody's getting plenty of value from the oddsbreakers.com. But we have a great show for you today because the U.S. Open is coming up this weekend and no better guests than have our own Patrick Gates from the Ozbreakers to talk about the U.S. Open. He has a wonderful article that's coming out soon at theozbreakers.com as well as Brady Cannon from the Heat Strokes podcast as well as golf.com to help break down this wonderful event coming this weekend. So very excited to cover the U.S. Open. Before we get into that, I want to remind you guys that we're always looking for great handicappers at theoddsbreakers.com. If you'd like to help monetize with the Oddsbreakers and share some of your premium stuff, please visit theoddsbreakers.com. Email us at info at theoddsbreakers.com. We'd love to check you out and have you come aboard. All right, without further ado, let's get into the U.S. Open with Patrick Gates from the Oddsbreakers and Brady Cannon from golf.com. Now I'm pleased to welcome back two of golf's finest cappers in Mr. Patrick Gates from the Oddsbreakers and Brady Cannon from the Heat Strokes Pod. Welcome back two of golf's finest cappers you can follow in Mr. Them on Gates. Twitter at Gator Betting and at Las Vegas Golfer. Summer is around the corner, guys. The U.S. Open is here, but we had a crazy finish last week to the Canadian Open, didn't we, Patrick? What the heck happened? Yeah, absolutely a wild finish between the uh, playoff between Nick Taylor and Tommy Fleetwood. Nick Taylor finally gets it done for his uh, home country here. Uh, absolutely crazy scenes, too. Adam Hadwin obviously almost stole the show, it seems like, on that 18th green getting uh, tackled by that bodyguard. <laughs> but, um, yeah, great week of golf for sure, and obviously the Canadian Open delivered. Uh, don't know what Brady's thoughts are on that as well. Oh, just the same as you, man. You're right. Hadwin kind of stole the show, but uh, pretty tough to steal the show with what Nick Taylor did. Um, just awesome on the fourth playoff hole, nailing a 72 foot eagle putt. And I, you know, all, honestly, I was kind of rooting for Tommy. You know, he's yeah. still searching for his first PGA Tour victory. He's won all over the world, but still hasn't won on the PGA Tour. And He's kind of one of my my players I, I enjoy watching. You know, he's got a great personality, great attitude, and I was kind of rooting for him. But, boy, the way Taylor got it done, how could you have not been thrilled for he and, and his country, the first Canadian Open winner from Canada in 69 years. It was, uh, you know, quite a, went with quite a bang the way they uh, reemerged uh, with the Canadian winner there. That was It was awesome to watch and leads us right into uh, U.S. Open week. It really does. And it's funny, I was thinking about Canada. I'm a big UFC guy. A ton of Canadians won at the UFC event, 289 last week. And uh, so it just made it right that a Canadian golfer won their event, you know, and it's, uh, it, it kind of makes sense. But I understand, you know, cheering for Fleetwood and everything. And 
want his first victory like that. That is, that's you know, that's something that he's still got to get obviously off of his back. But um, before we get into the U.S. Open here, quick quick comments on this, Brady. I'll start with you. Um, what are your thoughts on the Live Golf PGA merger itself from a sports betting perspective? Well, I think from a betting perspective, it's all positive. And, you know, aside from that, we really don't know what's going to happen. Now, apparently, the U.S. government is getting involved to kind of find out how this transaction is being done. And and I understand that it, it was kind of all of a sudden we all found out about it last week on Twitter, including the PGA Tour players. We don't really know any details about it. I think you know, to begin, there was more questions than answers. And now it seems there's even more questions than answers as we've gone on uh, a week since the announcement. So, you know, I, I think a lot of us just really don't know what exactly is going on. Uh, hopefully when the 2024 schedule comes out on the PGA tour, you know, we have a little bit more clarity. I don't know if they're going to run side by side where the live circuit will still have separate events and everybody's allowed to participate in whatever one they want. I, I, I don't know, but again, from a betting perspective, if we have these fields with the entire live roster now infused once again into the PGA tour schedule, uh, I, I think it's good from a betting perspective. Obviously, you're going to have more options, but you know, a guy on my Heat Strokes podcast, uh, my guest James Mazzola, also a very well respected voice in the golf betting community, he made a comment that I thought uh, really resonated with me, and that was, you know, some of these mid range guys, guys that are kind of in the top forty to fifty in the world that we're betting on on a week-to-week basis, say an Aaron Wise, a Keith Mitchell, a Siwoo Kim, uh, and and we're betting on them in week-to-week PGA Tour events, and they're in the neighborhood of 35 or 40 to 1. When we get that live influx uh, back into the mix here, these guys are going to be trading at more like 75, 80 to 1. So I, I think it creates some value, certainly on some very good players, when you bring that live contingent back into the mix. Uh, Patrick, what are your thoughts on the same perspective from a sports betting? Uh, obviously, looking at it holistically, is this going to make it better for us as betters, or um, is it going to be more confusing? Yeah, I think Brady summed it up kind of perfectly here. Obviously, with the influx of live guys here, if the if it does happen, who knows kind of what the terms are, given the fines, given everything, is it? But if the live guys, if you get some of those big names back, so your Brooks Kepka is kind of even your – middle name guys, your Joaquin Neiman's, who's won before on the PGA Tour last year at the Genesis, the increase in the strength of field is better for the odds. That's kind of the general point there that everyone agrees about too. If Live does stay kind of its own tour too, we may have better odds on the Live Tour. The Live Tour is not generally proposed on most books here, most major regulated sports books in the U.S. here. Maybe it's new merger or kind of alliance so per se, with the PGA Tour kind of puts a better image on them and we do start getting odds on them as well. And then even it goes even further than that too, if there is kind of that team aspect integrated into the PGA Tour, it's already kind of in the Zurich as well. We might have a new kind of market open up as well with team betting that we really haven't seen before as well on the PGA Tour. Yeah, well, there you go. And uh, I agree with you guys. It's it's almost like looking at the Derby uh you have 19 horses, and uh, it sure increases the payouts on some of those horses yeah. when there's more contestants, right? And uh, I think that's where we wanted to go. I, 
I personally like competition to make leagues better in general, but when they're neck and neck, it's almost like, yeah, the, you are splitting up a lot of these future prices on top 20s, top 10s, obviously to win it all as well. So I agree completely with you guys. But interestingly enough, the U.S. Open this this uh, year, well, pretty much any, any year, is going to have some of these live golfers, and there's some big names in there right now, isn't there, Brady? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that for the first two majors of the season. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that right after the Masters, when we saw Brooks Kepka hold the 54-hole lead and end up finishing second to John Rahm, and then you've got Phil Mickelson runner-up, Patrick Reed finishing fourth. You know, you had a number of the live players. I want to say it was five or six that finished in the top 20. And it was just a few days after that Masters that apparently these conversations started between the Saudis and the PGA Tour. So that certainly got their attention. And then Kepka goes on to win the PGA. So, you know, maybe the PGA's ultimate wishes were that the live was not going to be a factor. Well, obviously, a lot of these guys are still some of the best players in the world. And, and that's been proven in the form of where they're placing on the leaderboard in the first couple majors of the year. So here they are again. And I expect some of them will be in contention once again at L.A. Country Club. Yeah, makes sense, Patrick. Yeah, I certainly agree. Obviously, kind of, it was crazy to see. Uh, I mean, obviously, Brooks Kepka's had an up and down career, specifically as of late here, and to see him kind of come out at the Masters and just continue to show that he still has that elite level of golf that he could play um, was just incredible to watch and watch him kind of duel down the stretch with John Brom on Sunday. And I think, I mean, Phil honestly kind of flew majority under the radar there, finishing tied for second. At was just incredible. No one expected that. I think his odds were 100 to 1 plus at, uh, in that tournament as well. And while he wasn't really in contention, it's still for him, his name to be on top of a leaderboard in a major championship is a feat in itself. You wonder if those, you know, Kepka and Phil there in that major pushed him over the edge a little bit to get this deal done, you know? I mean, they're like, wow, this is embarrassing. You win the PGA, but then all of a sudden, you know, oh, we're going to get together here. Everybody's happy again. Obviously, it was a very hypocritical situation, but, you know, on this podcast, we care more about the sports betting side of things anyway. But um, getting to what's important, that's the U.S. Open this week. Brady, what course will this uh, the U.S. Open be played on this year? And uh, is this new for U.S. Opens over history. Yeah, absolutely. Yes and yes. It's uh, it's the Los Angeles Country Club, which is just uber exclusive. It's kind of interesting reading about this club, and, and you have to do a lot of research because there's no past history to go off of. Uh, they've held some more minor major championships, if you will, women's U.S. amateur, that type of thing, um, but uh, haven't held a golf tournament on the PGA Tour since 1940. That was the L.A. Open, and there hasn't been a United States Open championship for the men's side held in Los Angeles since 1948 when Ben Hogan one at another George Thomas design, Riviera Country Club, of course, where we see them play the Genesis Invitational every year on the tour. But yeah, the, the long and the short of it, this is absolutely a new piece of property uh, that we have not seen in a long, long time. And it's right in the middle of Beverly Hills on Wilshire Boulevard. And it's this massive, you know, 300 plus acre property. They'll play the North Course. George Thomas designed it in 1928. 
And then in the mid-2000s, Gil Hans and Jeff Shackelford were brought in to renovate the property. It had become overgrown and, you know, some of the natural erosion over time had kind of gotten away from what Thomas really wanted this golf course to be many, many years ago. And so they restored it. They brought the Barranca back into play, this dry riverbed that weaves its way throughout the property. It's built on a couple of hillsides. You've got ravines and valleys and elevation change. It's kind of wild, the topography of this property right in the middle of quote unquote downtown Los Angeles. This, it's like almost Augusta National with the rolling hills and the elevation change and the big wide fairways, again, right in the middle of LA. So uh, I, I think it's going to be a thrilling uh, United States Open Championship. Guys, the US Open for a while now has actually been my least favorite of the four majors <laughs> because with Augusta, you have the tradition and the drama on Sunday. I think the PGA Championship has been a huge uh, resurgence effort over the last 15 years or so. That's become a very exciting championship. And then the British Open, you know, that, that's where golf started. The weather, the Lynx-style golf, it's just something so pure and, and great to watch in the middle of the night over here on the West Coast. Uh, and the U.S. Open for many years is just, you know, a train wreck. And guys are struggling to make par and plus three wins the tournament and it, and it's not all that exciting always to watch with guys you know looking at eagle putts and making birdies and making a charge that doesn't happen all that often at a US Open a typical US Open but in this case I think this is a very different brand of U.S. Open golf, and I do think your winning score will get into maybe the five to eight under par range. I do think you're going to see some fireworks. I also think you're going to see some carnage, doubles and triple bogeys. But I think all of that, and including the golf course itself, is going to make for a very compelling watch this week. Brady, you haven't golfed at the L.A. Country Club, have you? No, no. I mean, <laughs> you know what's interesting, Kiev? They, they didn't even let movie stars in. It, it, we don't want any publicity. We don't want movie stars. I mean, it, it's very just random, probably very, very wealthy people in the Los Angeles area that have belonged and do belong to this club. Um, but it, it, it was not all the glitz and glamour where they were letting the celebrities and what have you, the big names to join this club. It's always been extremely low key. They say this piece of property is worth multiple billion dollars. I mean, think about it, you know, 300 some acres sitting right there in Beverly Hills. Uh, it, it's not hard to understand how much this property is worth, but uh, you know, it's, it's great that the USGA was finally able to convince this membership to hold a, ma a major championship that we can all enjoy and view, because for many years, they did not want any sort of publicity. It sounds like bobolinks in Chicago, and Yeah, <laughs> very exclusive stuff. Oh, man, I've heard stories about that place. But no, I, I, I almost think that it, it, the fact that they don't let the drama come in is almost kind of cool to me a little bit. But this segment was brought to you by AG1. Why take a bunch of different things when you can just mix one scoop of powder in water once a day? Every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and the whole food-sourced ingredients of high quality that gives me major benefits like gut and mood support, boosted energy, and either even healthier-looking skin, hair, and nails. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get one free year of vitamin D and AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash theozbreakers or click on our podcast episode description. Patrick, let's talk about the course a little bit at LA Country Club. Could you go over some of the course information? Yeah, I mean, 
So I just want to echo on Brady said too, kind of the exclusivity of it. I mean, it it is crazy too. It's so the last time the course kind of underwent that Gilhans renovation as well. The clubhouse obviously underwent kind of a renovation as well. Um, and I was reading about it, and you saw that they rededicated the terrace to Ronald Reagan, who is a fellow member of this club too. Just speaking to kind of who is a member at this club basically of just it is the upper echelon of these kind of wealthy elites and powerful people in the world as well um and yeah i mean lacc like like Brady talked about not much is known about this course at all the last time he saw it was the 2017 walker cup uh where you do have some kind of notable names on that team your scotty shefflers your colin morikawa as you go down the list uh, Will Zalatoris, who's obviously out for the year with a back injury, Maverick McNeely, Cam Champ, the list goes on here. Um, so that was kind of the last time this course was in the news as well. Before that, you had the 2013 Pac-12 championship, which Max Homa won um, as well. So there's several other guys who kind of have some connections, if you can say, um, even possibly to this course as well. But it's a pretty fairly long course at playing uh, over 7,400 yards here, par 70 here. Interesting tune as well. We got bent grass greens here, which we typically don't see out in California here. I think the only other course on the tour that features these bent grass greens is Torrey Pines South. Um, so it's always tough too when you're looking at course comps here as well here. And I've seen a bunch of different names thrown around. Obviously, Augusta's one, two, Southern Hills as well. Um, but it's really tough to kind of pinpoint what course re directly compares to this because of its unique features and kind of how it sets up itself. So the one thing that they've been talking about as well is the wide ferry fairways this week too. The fairways are on the larger side when you're strictly looking at a length number, but the pinpoint accuracy required off some of these fairways is immeasurable here, so especially at number 13 and 14. The slope uh, kind of on that driving area of where these players are going to land the ball is utterly ridiculous. There's some videos out there, obviously, just showing kind of even if you do are able to hit that kind of left side of the fairway on 13 that you're looking for here, that ball can still end up in the right rough. Um, so it's going to be an extremely challenging course here. There's several blind approach shots that players are going to have to hit this week. The greens are on the larger side as well, but the rough even around the greens, kind of what the USA open is known for um, is just extremely punishable here. So there's several factors to consider here when you're kind of looking at this course in general. Anything to add to that, Brady? Well, I think uh, Patrick hit the nail on the head and probably one of the most glaring points about this golf course, maybe two areas that Patrick touched on. First of all, the fairways, you know, they're canted or sloped in one direction or the other. And even though they're extremely wide, like Patrick said, there is a slot that you have to hit in order to, you know, have position A with your tee ball. And if you miss that by just a little bit, you could be down one side or the other and possibly in the Barranca or, or set with a very blind second shot. And I think that's what George Thomas wanted. You know, they talk about kind of the buzzword of the week has been angles. He wants to see different angles and provide different looks for players to have to try and hit different shots. And I think that's where creativity comes in quite a bit versus other U.S. Opens. Other U.S. Opens, it's, you know, hit it down the middle, hit the green, two putt, move on. I, I think the the bounces and the slopes and, and, and the barranca and the cant to these fairways is going to bring a lot of different golf shots into play. So off the tee, you have that 
to negotiate. And, and then maybe the very most important area of this test is going to be around the greens, like Patrick touched on there. Uh, there's incredible rough around the edges of the bunkers around the greens. The bunkers are really rugged and deep. Uh, and there's a little bit of a mix here. You've got some areas off the fairway where the rough is very thick, some areas off the fairway where there's not much rough to speak of, of all, at all. And then similar around the greens, you might have some areas where it's really thick and then another area where you have a shaved runoff area and a ball that misses the green is going to roll down into a collection area and you've got to figure out how you're going to chip it and get it up and down from there. So um, around the greens, there's a lot of different options and, and results that players are going to face. And I think the same is true with the tee ball in the fairway. So, uh, you know, Thomas's intention uh, of wanting to create a lot of different uh, strategy and thought process for these players, I think is going to play out this week. And it's going to take a ton of patience, I believe, and, and not only controlling your golf ball off the tee, but a magnificent short game. Yeah, I would almost think strokes gained tee to green would be a key statistic looking at here. Uh, Patrick, uh, I know I'm kind of jumping around here, but um, I, we, like different courses have different ways of handicapping what's one of the main ones you're going to be looking at? Yeah. I mean, with the new course too, there's going to be a variety of narratives this week. Every one kind of that I've been seeing has a different approach to this. Um, I think the biggest difference too, is there's the biggest narrative to me is driving distance versus driving accuracy here. Accuracy here, obviously, like we'd mentioned too, it's a long course, but the fairways are very firm and there are several of kind of those sweet spots that you can, that the ball will roll out at. So I, I'm curious to hear what Brady's thoughts on here of kind of if he's prioritizing either driving distance or driving accuracy this week uh, when kind of looking at that statistic, because really you can argue it feels like either way. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I've seen both sides of the coin as well. I kind of favor accuracy a little more, but um, length is certainly going to be helpful because this course is long. Now, you mentioned it, Patrick, a little over 7,400 yards in a par 70, but they have a lot of options with these tee boxes. So I think you're going to see the distance of the course fluctuate quite a bit day to day in the way the USG sets, uh, USGA sets it up. Now, you know, on the other hand, you have some guys that tend to spray the ball off the tee, but I don't think they'll be as penalized as normal. Now, they may end up with a blind second shot or a ball in some light rough off the fairway. But it's not going to be like the PGA Championship, where if you miss the fairway, you're in the schmutz. And, and it's you know certainly almost a, a guaranteed bogey, if not worse. I, I think, again, Thomas's intention here was to create options. And so if you're not you know spot on accurate off the tee, I don't think that's going to necessarily take you out of the hole. If you're somewhat accurate, um, I think you're going to be OK. So I think a combination of being somewhat accurate and somewhat long is probably ideal here. And then from there, it's creativity and making some tremendous long iron shots. And again, the short game. So, um, you know, it's hard to say which is more important, Patrick. I think it's a little bit of a combination of both. I mentioned the length of the course. You can't be incredibly short, but you touched on it as well. The golf course is going to be so firm and fast that the short guys aren't going to be out of this either. All right. No, fair enough. And why don't we talk about some of the favorites then coming in? And I'm looking at the Betfred odds screen, betfredsports.com. Scotty Scheffler is the one 
that looks like the favorite to me. Then John Rahm, Bruce Kepka, Rory McIlroy. I'm guessing this is uh, pretty similar in other books as well. Um, are these deserving favorites, Brady? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kepka comes off of the PGA Championship victory. He's proven, you know, a runner-up at the Masters. He's proven that he's back to uh, Big Bad Brooks, and uh, all he does is win majors. John Rahm, the number two player in the world, just won the Masters. Uh, Rory McIlroy has probably been the one guy that's been off a tick. But, you know, if you look at what he's done, it hasn't been all that bad and just had another pretty decent tournament in Canada as the two-time defending champion. And then you've got Scotty Scheffler at the top who, you know, the putter has really been eluding him the last couple of weeks, but boy, his T to green game, you mentioned strokes gain T to green Kiev. Uh, this guy is on a tiger woods like level right now with his ball striking and his T to green game. If he can just putt average this week, he ought to win this thing by four or five shots over everybody else. That's how good his ball striking has been as of late. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Patrick, any thoughts on the favorites, and how about a few sleepers? Yeah, no, I mean, Brady Brady kind of touched on it. I mean, they're the favorites for a reason, right? Scotty Scheffler pretty much won his first major championship of the year last year at the Masters, hasn't won since, but he's been in great form as of late. Um, I mean, this year it's kind of just been ridiculous too, and the only thing that's stopping him from winning every event is is putting. Um, so... That's kind of the approach on Scotty every week, and you kind of look at the odds, and you go on the board, and you can kind of argue for everyone there. I mean, Rory's the interesting one that I think everyone kind of ponders at every week with every major championship as well. Uh, his last major, obviously, was the 2014 PGA Championship here. Um, coming into it in pretty good form here with two top 10 finishes in here. Um, also a previous U.S. Open winner as well. So I think Rory's kind of that one spot that everyone – the one favorite that everyone kind of puts a question mark on um, just given kind of his inability to kind of close that major championship um, kind of in the past few years, uh, especially since 2014. But in terms of sleepers here, um, the top of the board is pretty heavy and given kind of the difficulty of this course, you're going to kind of see these major guys being contention here. Uh, I have no doubt one of them will be in there come Sunday. Um, a few guys down the board, obviously, that I'm kind of looking at playing is Jordan Spieth here at 33, 32, 33 to 1. Um, but obviously, it's not so much of a long shot there. Obviously, your long shots are going to be a little bit more pricey. But I do really like Spieth this year. Um, doesn't have a win this year. Lost in the RBC Heritage playoff to uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick, the U.S. Open winner last year at the Country Club. He's been dealing with a wrist injury, though, this year, too. You can see him kind of taped up, especially at the PGA Championship. Um, and the Charles Schwab and the Wells Fargo kind of just really struggling uh, with certain moments with that shot here. But he does come into this event uh, off a top top five finish at the Memorial last week. His also two best uh, driving performances were in two of his last three starts as well, which has kind of been his kryptonite. Um, but looking at his game as well, he's a great bent grass putter as well. And then um, also... 2015 U.S. Open champion at Chambers Bay, which is, again, I've heard tossed around as a comparable course this week. Um, so, yeah, I don't mind speed this week. He's a great, great, has great touch around the greens as well. And then is just an incredible ball striker, gaining strokes kind of in uh, 11 of his last 12 on approach. Oh, fair enough. So Spieth here, 20 to 1 in this book. I just saw 25 to 1 
in DraftKings. You know, so it looks like maybe it's moving a little bit against you. I bet you if you shop around, you can still find that 30, 30 to 1, 30, yeah. 32 the, to 1 price. A few other names that I just want to mention too is uh, Ricky, obviously, kind of a resurgence here as well. And then kind of a live dark horse here would be uh, Mito Pereira. Okay, that's a 80 to 1. Now, now that's more my style, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love it. 80 to 1 is a great price. And it, it looks, what, what's the deal with Mito? Why, why him? Yeah, so Mito's coming off a third place finish at Live DC. And I think Mito's most known for, unfortunately, is kind of that blow up last year at the PGA Championship at Southern Hills. Um, he had the lead going into 18 and just that questionable decision of he pulls driver out, kind of runs into that little creek area as well. But we saw him play well at the PGA Championship earlier this year, uh, finishing in the top 20 as well. So, yeah, I mean, and then even we've kind of seen that path to success from coming from playing well in your last live event as Brooks kind of won live uh, Orlando and then finished tie for second at the Masters and then finished sixth at Live Tulsa and won the PGA Championship. So just uh, just a name out there that I wouldn't be too shocked if he kind of creeps his way up the leaderboard. All right, Brady, how about you? Who are some of your sleepers here? And then I'll even ask you, who are some of the top ones that shouldn't be so top, some fades? Well, Patrick mentioned Ricky Fowler and, uh, you know, Ricky Fowler, if you mentioned that, uh, you know, in the past five, six years or so that he was your pick to win a tournament, you might've gotten a chuckle out of somebody, but uh, it is no longer a joke. This guy is really playing tremendous golf. And you go back to 2014, he finished top five in every major. So he's got the history. He's got an incredible history at Augusta National. Uh, You know, a number of the Gil Hance renovated courses he's done well on at the past. Shinnecock in 2018, the U.S. Open there, another course that, you know, may have some resemblance as far as the Lynx-ish type style and some of the elevation change. Uh, Fowler had a top 20 finish there. And and you put, you know, his past history together with what he's doing currently, and he certainly makes a lot of sense. And he's anywhere from like 60 to 80 to 1 uh, to win this thing. Uh, also, I like to always look at the Charles Schwab Challenge, Colonial Country Club, and the Memorial, a couple of recent tournaments on the PGA Tour that I think are very good indicators of U.S. Open success. And I mean, Colonial Country Club held a U.S. Open in 1941, and the golf course has never really changed since then. The Memorial has churned out a number of U.S. Open winners, Bryson DeChambeau, um, Justin Rose, Tiger Woods, uh, John Rahm. So uh, I think both of those courses make a lot of sense in trying to handicap a U.S. Open winner. And Ricky Fowler at Colonial just recently finished sixth and then was ninth at the Memorial. So that kind of tells you, I think, that he certainly should be in the conversation here. Uh, speaking of Justin Rose, I also think he is uh, playing fantastic golf as of late. A sixth-place finish earlier this year at the Players' Championship. He won at Pebble Beach. A nice finish last week in Canada. Also, a Gil Hance restoration uh, last year at the Canadian Open in St. George's Golf and Country Club, where Justin Rose finished fourth. 
Um, he, I, I think Marion, where Justin Rose won the 2013 U.S. Open, has some similarities with the Parkland style and the rugged bunkers. So Justin Rose checks a lot of boxes as well. He's got an incredible track record at Augusta. He's just a great player that does a lot of things very well. His long iron play is exceptional. He's one of the best putters in the world, and he's very accurate off the tee. So I, I think he's a long shot that could show well. I mean, he, he's shown up this year. He just, I think it was 13th at the PGA, or no, it was a top 10, I believe, at the PGA Championship. So, you know, the old gray mare, Justin Rose, is playing some <laughs> darn good golf this year and, and could be in the mix again. And then... Patrick threw out Mito Pereira as a long shot uh, live player. I I'm going to go one even a little deeper. And I think Patrick Reed is possibly in play here. I got him at 110 to one. And I found that number to be a little crazy. I've seen him as low as 80, may maybe even 70. I think I saw on Patrick Reed, but I was able to find 110. And, you know, we've kind of been talking about it throughout the show. Chambers Bay, Shinnecock, Augusta, you know, these rolling elevation change type golf courses, atypical of a U.S. Open, creativity and imagination being needed. You know, you have to be a short game wizard. Patrick Reed is all of those. And, and he's won at Augusta and he's won at Kapalua. And, and he was 14th at Chambers Bay in 2015. He was also fourth at Shinnecock in 2018. He was also just 18th at the PGA Championship recently and fourth at the Masters. So why is all of a sudden this guy trading at triple digits? He seems to still have the game in my mind. All right, great, great stuff. And, you know, when I think about the Liv golfers. I think about the big win that Liv just had. You wonder if these guys kind of come in and uh, have a little extra confidence, uh, you know, in this situation, maybe not being as hated by the media and other fans as they once were. So uh, that's an interesting little angle that I'm thinking about. Moving on to, like, maybe some fades. And this could be some, you know, match play ideas here. One, I'm just looking at Victor Hovland here at 16-1. to 1. Now, his price here weeks ago before he won was a lot higher wasn't it Patrick yeah I mean Victor Hovland obviously um as we know kind of at the PGA Championship him and Brooks kind of dueled it out on Sunday and unfortunately hit that shot on 16 that landed in that bunker that kind of led to Brooks kind of trotting to victory there uh on Sunday as well he rebounded well with a win at the memorial but even before that he finished t16 at the uh Charles Schwab challenge here so I mean, Victor obviously is one of the elite uh, iron players on tour as well. Um, and his putting has been improving lately when you kind of look at his strokes gain trend in, in the right direction here. So that's something to notice. Victor's kryptonite for a while has been his play around the green. Um, when you kind of look at these tournaments that do factor in that short game, Victor Hovland was always a name that you consider, but you kind of would throw out in certain tournaments as well. So that is my one concern with Victor Hovland. Uh, I mean, obviously, he has been improving in that area, gaining strokes in two of his last three events. But his short game has always kind of been, uh, per se, his kryptonite when you're kind of looking at his uh, skill set. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Brady, are you going to possibly play some matchups? And is there anyone on top that you should possibly fade in this situation? I did play a few matchups and basically two players, you know, I, I've got a few matchups where I'm just kind of betting on one guy, but a couple of other matchups where I'm going against a particular guy. And one matchup is um, going against Max Homa with Matthew Fitzpatrick, Matthew Fitzpatrick uh, over Max Homa. 
Uh, Homa, you know, there's been a lot of a buzz, and Patrick talked about it in the 2013 Pac-12 Championships. He shot a course record here, a 61. Um, but he just hasn't been in great form as of late. He's been losing strokes to the field uh, in, in his last few starts on tour. He has never fared well in major championships. And I think that coupled with the attention that he's getting because, you know, he's the California kid. He always wins in California. And, you know, after he won the, the Farmers Insurance Open at Torrey Pines this year, everybody immediately jumped on him to win the U.S. Open. So I, I think there's maybe just a little too much love for Max Homa combined with the fact that he hasn't been in great form as of late. And then speaking of not been in great form, Justin Thomas. Uh, I took Tony Finau in a matchup over Justin Thomas. JT's odds are all the way to 50 to 1 now to win the U.S. Open. And, and it was funny. Uh, it, it was at the Memorial. Uh, a golf course, Mirfield Village, where he's had a ton of success and his odds got up to 30 to one. And I said, you know what? This is starting to become, maybe it was 35. I can't remember. But I said, uh, this is starting to become like a threshold point where it might be time to go back and, and bet on Justin Thomas. Well, he disappointed once again. And, and here we are at the US Open and his odds are all the way to 50. So uh, even at that price, I'm not going to try, uh, try and take another stab with JT. It's just been a bad season for him. All right, fade him. He, he costing you money. Get him out of here, man. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Oh, no, great stuff and great information here. I'm, I'm looking at those matchups, man. You broke them down very well. Uh, so, Patrick, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you completely have your ticket yet, but how are you going to approach your ticket? Is there going to be some top 20s, top 10s? What are you going to do for this course? Yeah, kind of stick with a similar format uh, that I've been using is obviously your outrights as well. And then kind of going down the placement, um, your top 10s, your top 20s, uh, your top 30s even. I mean, the market too is tough this week too. When you're looking at kind of that top 40 market here, obviously you have to be selective into which book you use given kind of those dead heat rules. But I've kind of leaned more towards top 30s this week. I have a few guys that have kind of circled as well. And then even a few matchups, uh, Brady had mentioned kind of fading Max Homa here. This week, I'm kind of fading Dustin Johnson. One of the matchups that I do like is Matthew Fitzpatrick over Dustin Johnson here. Dustin Johnson has kind of struggled as of late here. When you look at his last few finishes, T48 at the Masters, obviously. But and then he won Live Tulsa. But I mean, if you kind of look at his last few finishes on that Live Tour, they haven't been great. Um, and we're really not sure kind of what game he's coming into this course with as well. And Fitzpatrick dealing with a neck injury earlier in the season, um, rebounded at the RBC Heritage as well. But he's been playing pretty well as of late, uh, finishing T9 at the Memorial and then T20 at the RBC Canadian Open. So I do like that price on Fitzpatrick over Dustin Johnson this week uh, as one of kind of the matchups that I have circled as well. And then in addition to fading Max Homa, the... Cam Smith over Max Homa this week as well as another matchup that I kind of have my eye on. All right. Well, yeah, DJ hasn't been to form lately. And you wonder if he's just got too many little kids running around. I know, I know, I know how that goes, man. I'm knee deep in that stuff. So <laughs> makes sense. Brady, how about you? How are you approaching your ticket? Well, I mentioned uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick over Max Homa and then also Tony Finau over Justin Rose. Uh, I also played Ricky Fowler at minus 120 over Sun J.M. Sun J.M. is another guy 
uh, that's been uh, on the downturn really ever since he made the trip back home and then tried to come back the very next week and, and play what I think was the PGA Championship. He opened up the PGA with an 80 uh, and eventually missed the cut there, and, and he just really hasn't been the same Sun JM that we're used to week in and week out, who is typically a force. But it's been three or four weeks in a row uh, where he's been losing strokes to the field and just off his game a tick. And we talked about Ricky Fowler really on the upswing. So uh, I thought it was a pretty affordable price to lay with Fowler over Sun JM. Uh, as far as the outrights, I, I did go to the very top of the board and take a stab with Scotty Scheffler. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, if this guy can just be an average putter this week, he should win this thing. I mean, this guy's been an awful putter and has finished runner-up in third. So he's just really incredible. And, and again, if, if the putter is just a little bit better this week, um, he's going to be absolutely right there again, if not in the winner's circle. Um, I mentioned the long shots, Justin Rose at 75 to one. I've seen that number go all the way down to as low as 40. Uh, Ricky Fowler, I got at 80 to one. He's in the neighborhood of 60 or so, I believe currently, which I still think is a fine bet. And then Patrick Reed at 110 to one. I also played those guys, uh, Scotty Scheffler. I played for a top 10 finish at minus 135 and then, uh, Rose Fowler and Reed. I also played for top 20 finishes. All right, no, great stuff. And uh, I didn't mention the weather because I think it's going to be looking good, right? L.A., June. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of rain, Patrick. Is that still accurate? Yeah, it looks to be high 60s, low 70s, kind of all the week, all week uh, as well. And the wind, obviously, I think isn't really going to be a factor here uh, just based on kind of the preliminary weather report that we're seeing. Okay, good stuff here. Well, it's Tuesday, so we still have a little time for it to change. Hopefully, it uh, remains very solid. Brady, thank you so much for coming on this show, my man. Uh, really appreciate all your breakdowns here for the U.S. Open. Where could our listeners get your great information and media? Yeah, you can find my written work at golf.com, and I also write for the PGA Tour, their betting division, uh, Golf Bet. And then I have come on uh, Sports Grid Radio three times a week. And you can kind of figure it all out if you just follow me on Twitter at Las Vegas Golfer. All the information will be there for you. Yeah, Patrick, how about you? What you got going on? And uh, where could our, we get your great article? Yeah, of course, at theoddsbreakers.com. Uh, U.S. Open article will be out later today in addition to uh, Stanley Cup Game 5 preview. So be on, the, be on the lookout for that. Yes, and be on the lookout for Patrick's show a little bit later today too. P possibly the last game of the NHL this season, just like we had for the NBA. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. We'll be texting. Thanks for having me, Kios. Now it's time for a little AFC South 2023 preview season win totals. All right. Worked on this at the end of last week, and I got through it. It wasn't easy because if I could completely skip this terrible division with apologies to the Jaguars I certainly would I did find some creativity here though so I'm hoping it all pans out when it's all said and done now the Jaguars are clear favorites here to win the division that makes it easier for them because they have six very winnable games those are all against the Titans, the Colts, and the Texans within their division. 
This year, you're going to see at least two quarterback changes, if not three, when Will Levis gets going for the Titans. The AFC South plays the AFC North and the NFC East, which isn't terrible, yet it's still a lot tougher than this division in itself. As you know, I just did the AFC North, and they all have a pretty high floor. The the NFC East just depends upon how good the Giants and Washington is really going to be. Let's dig in a little bit here to see what kind of value we can find. The division winner odds are Jaguars minus 150, Titans plus 400, Colts plus 500, and Texans plus 750. Starting with the best team always, the Jacksonville Jaguars, their Vegas win total is 9.5, juice to the over, minus 135, 2022 wins was 9, Pythagorean wins was 9.72, so they underachieved some. Their schedule is actually medium easy. At large versus Kansas City versus Buffalo in London, so it's not an at Buffalo, it's a neutral game at least. So they're one of those teams with nine home games and seven away games and one neutral. And then versus San Francisco. So that sounds hard. But like I said, within their division, certainly a lot easier. Their schedule last year, though, was medium easy due to their division. Their key losses, right tackle Jawan Taylor, outside linebacker Arden Key. Safety Chris Wingard, tight end Chris Manhurts, cornerback Shaquille Griffin, wide receiver Marvin Jones, and defensive tackle Cordy Peters is not signed. Key additions, kicker Brandon McManus, right tackle Josh Wells from Tampa, and wide receiver Calvin Ridley back from suspension. Hopefully he has suspended his sports betting apps on his phone. Key draft picks, tackle Anton Harrison, tight end Brenton Strange, linebacker Ventrill Miller, edge Tyler Lacey, edge Yasir Abdullah, safety Antonio Johnson, and a bunch more. This Jaguars team was wonderful last year, minus some dumb mistakes. This team lost some easier games due to dumb mistakes throughout the early part of the season. They might have beat the Super Bowl champion Chiefs had they not fumbled late inside their own five-yard line. First, let's talk about the bad. There really isn't too much to say, minus that the Jaguars lost pretty some pretty good players to free agency. They're certainly taking a chance on their offensive line with formal former Oklahoma Sooner left tackle Anton Harrison being slotted right into the starting spot. And that's due to the loss of Jawan Taylor and the suspension of Cam Robinson for performance-enhancing drugs. Drugs are bad, okay. So that was a mistake. I mean... What's going on here? You got a player that was gambling last year, and then you have a player that's doing drugs. Hopefully they clean up their organization a little bit. But the good news is that team has a good scheme 
at least to have Trevor get rid of the ball quickly. Press Taylor has been a very underrated offensive coordinator, in my opinion. Other than that, I expect the Jaguars to be fierce. Um, They hit their lumps last year. They were kind of that team that bad things would happen to them during the game. Bad fumbles, um, boneheaded mistakes, as you saw in many games. I mean, the Sharps love this team for their power, but sometimes they do just go through growing pains of young teams. But this year, you expect them to mature some. They certainly got a ton of draft picks, and with any hope, they will hit on a few of them to improve that defense that was 12th in EPA, hopefully to top eight. The good news for this Jaguars team also is that their schedule is looking very promising. They do have some rough games versus some at-large opponents, but they have every single at-large game at home or London, as I mentioned before. How can you not love the fact that they get to play games in London, stay there for two weeks in a row, you know? And you also have to love that they get the Colts, the Texans, and the Titans all twice. Jacksonville also doesn't get any teams coming off bye weeks this year. None of them. We have to remember that this team is going to get a receiver back. Even though they didn't have a ton of free agency moves, they get Calvin Ridley back from suspension, so that has to count for something. My number for the Jaguars is 9.86 wins, so it's kind of right where the market is on them at the 9.5 juice to the over, but I have a a different play that I'm going to take. I think Jacksonville might have it so fortunate this year that they have a good chance to get home field advantage throughout the AFC. Now, the AFC is tough, but their division is certainly the easiest in the AFC and the easiest in all of football. They have a shot to win the AFC, and you have a good hedging opportunity if they can get to that final game, especially if it's at home. They are at plus 1,600 in some books, plus 15 widely available to win the AFC. And being that they're not in the AFC East, which has Buffalo, the New York Jets, Miami. They're not in the AFC North where the Ravens, the Bengals are going to be duking out, maybe with the Steelers or the Browns. And they're not in the AFC West with the strength of Kansas City up top who has to play a first-place schedule. And then you have the Chargers. And then you have a better Denver team with a better coach in Sean Payton. And then the Raiders can be sometimes meddling. So I just think that they have the easiest possible path that give you opportunity to make money off that ticket. Jacksonville to win the AFC plus 1600 for one start. So hot right now. Number two, the Tennessee Titans. Vegas win total 7.5 juice to the under minus 130. So when your second team is 7.5 wins, you know that division's bad and juice to the under. 2022 wins was seven. Pythagorean wins was 6.82. Schedule, medium easy, at large versus the Chargers at Miami versus Seattle. Last year's schedule was medium. He lost his guard, Nate Davis. Defensive end, Demarcus Walker. Wide receiver, Wyatt Woods. 
linebacker David Long, outside linebacker Bud Dupree, defensive end Mario Edwards, and left tackle Taylor Luan is not signed. Key additions, offensive coordinator Tim Kelly to hopefully change things up, tackle Andre Dillard, outside linebacker Arden Key, tackle Danielle Brunskill, linebacker Aziz Alshair from San Fran, and then cornerback Sean Bunting. Key draft picks, tackle Peter Skoronowski from Northwestern, quarterback Will Levis, obviously, and running back Rija Spears. The Titans were one win away from stealing the wildcard spot from the Jaguars, but their Pythagorean win number would have said that they were very, very lucky anyways. Even with the loss, they've underachieved some. This team was a front office mess over the last two years, They know how to piss off a quarterback. Say what you want about Tannehill, but he is a solid starter, you know? And now that he's pissed, I wonder how that affects his game. The Will Levis draft pick, I'm sure, has really affected him, right? (laughs) They, they, They just basically put the middle finger to him. Tennessee promoted Tim Kelly from passing coordinator to offensive coordinator for this 2023 season. He learned behind Bill O'Brien, and as his short tenure as the OC in Houston, the team went 4-13. Bill O'Brien, what could go wrong? From a skill positions perspective, I really do not see much talent past an aging Derrick Henry who probably should be traded or let go. But I do not think that many other teams want them him, so they're kind of stuck with him. There's rumors that they might sign DeAndre Hopkins right now. Is that going to add a lot with a young quarterback? It probably would help them out some, but how much, you know? Hopkins wants to win. He's going to a team that's kind of in shambles, in my opinion. Not a great move from DeAndre unless nobody else wants him. The defense should once again be solid after they filled some holes in free agency, but I just feel like they maybe lost even a little bit more to free agency. Especially when thinking about Demarcus Walker and unsigned Taylor Luan. In 2022, the Titans ranked 30th in passing yards per game. They struggled to score points in almost every game. I see a very bad offense going into 2023, and especially if they switch early to Will Levis. The good news is that the Titans' schedule is pretty favorable this year as they get plus 11 rest days, as well as getting the Chargers early in Miami late. What I like about that is the Chargers are gelling with New OC, Kellen Moore, and that's going to take a little time. And Miami, late means maybe two is out of the picture. So I kind of like that. The win total is pretty low as it is. But even with this schedule, I still have to lean to the under. My number is 6.91, and it's a shame that it's not higher. or Their win total is not higher. But when I'm looking at 7.5 juice to the under, and I'm at 6.91, they could accidentally get to eight wins. <laughs> Just depends upon how the season's kind of laid out. In my opinion, it's too close to my number. So I'm going to lean to the under, but no play on the Titans. Their power rating is minus 2.25 points uh, worse than the average team. 
I believe I missed it when I said Jacksonville. Their par rating is pretty high this year. I have Jacksonville at 3.75 points above the average team. So there you go. That's the difference between the Titans and the Jaguars. I literally have it at about six points, about a touchdown difference. If they played on a neutral site, I would expect the Jaguars to win by almost a touchdown. That's a big discrepancy when it comes to any of these divisions uh, in my power ratings. Now, power ratings, they change quickly, obviously, early in the season. But this is where I have to start these teams. Minus 2.5 for the Titans. Number three, the Houston Texans. Vegas win total is 6.5, juice to the under, minus 130. 2022 wins, 3.5 due to the tie with the Colts. The Pythagorean wins, 4.93. So they underachieved, just like the outliers show normally. Schedule medium easy at large versus Arizona versus Denver and at the New York Jets. Last year's schedule was easy. Key losses, Coach Lovey Smith, defensive end Ogbania Okoronkuo, I hate saying that name. Defensive end Rasheem Green. Center Justin Britt is an unsigned. AJ Can, which is a guard, is unsigned. And defensive end Mario Addison is unsigned. Key additions. Wide receiver Robert Woods. Safety Jimmy Ward. Defensive tackle Sheldon Rankins. Tight end Dalton Schultz. Quarterback Case Keenum. Cornerback Trayvon Smith. Cornerback Shaquille Griffin. Uh, defensive tackle Hoshan Ridgeway. Running back Devin Singletary. Defensive end Che Winovich, and a bunch more. Key draft picks. Quarterback C.J. Stroud, Edge Will Anderson, center Juice Scruggs, and a bunch of hope. This Texans team, like most of the division, has a very boneheaded front office. But how the heck, I'm still in awe, how the heck are you just going to allow the Bears to take the first pick like that? Yeah, how do you allow Lovey to coach that last game? You know, that's how much it was worth. Now, they can pretend all they want that they wanted CJ Stroud over Bryce Young, but even if they wanted CJ Stroud going into the first pick, they could trade down with uh Carolina and trade back up to the two spot, possibly anyway as well. They could have traded back up to the two spot from the Bears. So they completely blew it. But anyways, that's all watered under the bridge right now. For the bad mistakes that they've made, this Texas team was extremely active in free agency. And this defense might even look halfway respectable with D'Amico Ryans as head coach. Matt Burke as defensive coordinator and Bobby Slowick as offensive coordinator who hopefully learned a lot as passing game quarterback from Kyle Shanahan in at the 49ers. Now, although this team kind of got screwed, in my opinion, on their fourth place schedule, I mean, getting Denver and the New York Jets isn't exactly fun for a team getting a fourth place schedule. I think this team could be sneaky, sneaky okay. Not sneaky good, sneaky okay by the middle of the 2023 NFL season. The C.J. Stroud and Will Anderson picks from the 2023 draft were one hell of a one-two punch, you know. Will Anderson, people had him number one. 
C.J. Stroud, some guys like myself, had him as the top quarterback. So it was a great job there. We'll see what happens with the rest of the team, but they were so active. Maybe this team can do something. I personally believe at the end of the season, it's going to be the Houston Texans that are ranked higher than the Titans, but that's just more of a hot take right now. We'll see what happens when the preseason starts and we can take a better look at some of the teams you know, coming in with the young quarterbacks. But the John Mechie trending healthy is good. Having Robert Woods there now, they got him from the Titans. He's a veteran receiver that should be able to kind of lead the pack. Maybe they'll be somewhat respectable. There's just a lot of wait and see, but I'm kind of optimistic with the Texans. But unfortunately, my number is only 6.72 wins. So um, I, I'm going to strongly lean to the over on this. I'm just not going to be taking it. I have to start off their power rating pretty low at minus 4.5 points worse than the average team based upon all the change. But this one could climb up to possibly, you know, negative two, negative one, maybe even a zero by the end of the season. The Indianapolis Colts is obviously the number four. And their Vegas win total is 6.5, juice to the over, minus 135. Their 2022 wins was 4.5 due to the tie, and their Pythagorean wins was 5.93. Their schedule is easy versus the L.A. Rams at New England in Frankfurt, Germany. So it's more of a new, it's more of a neutral game. And then versus the Las Vegas uh, Raiders. Schedule last year was also easy. Key losses, Coach Jeff Saturday and Frank Reich. <laughs> Quarterbacks Matt Ryan and Nick Foles are unsigned, and I do not think they're going to be signed ever again in the NFL. Linebacker Bobby Okariki, cornerback Brandon Faison, wide receiver Paris Candle, and safety Rodney McLeod. Key additions, Coach Shane Steichen, defensive end Sansom, Ibukum, kicker Matt Gay, linebacker EJ Speed, defensive tackle Taven Bryan, quarterback Garner Minshew, and wide receiver Isaiah McKenzie. Who they drafted, quarterback Anthony Richardson, cornerback Julius Brents, wide receiver Josh Downs, tackle Blake Freeland, and a bunch of later dudes. Some say the Houston Texans are the worst team in the NFL. Some say it's the Cardinals. Or the Panthers, maybe the Rams or the Bucks this year, they're all wrong because the worst team in football is the Indianapolis Colts, and I'm not even sure it's close. The Colts have the worst ownership in the NFL. It kind of fits the division. And looking at others like the McCaskies with the Bears, the Fords with the Lions, that's saying something. So the Colts were supposed to be the best team in their division last year, but they faltered all the way to third due to pure incompetence from leadership. Both the head coach and the interim coach, Jeff Saturday, was fired last season. And I'm not even sure how much of the fault they should bear. <laughs> was Matt Ryan that bad of a quarterback? Or was it the coach or just was it the players around him? He wasn't with the Falcons. <laughs> Transitioning to this year, new coach Shane Steichen will take over an offense 
um, with help from his new offensive coordinator, Jim Bob Cooter. <laughs> Remember his name from college? Now, if that's not a name for Southern football, I really don't know what it is. But defensive coordinator Gus Bradley remains in place, who actually wasn't the main problem with this team. But as far as talent goes, this team certainly lacks it on defense. Maybe Shaq Leonard and a few overpriced guys will do something for them. But the worst move in 2023 in the draft was drafting the most overrated quarterback prospect in the draft in Anthony Richardson from Florida. Richardson is fast and strong, but he will not be able to run much in the NFL if teams do not respect the pass. You know, at least guys like Kyler Murray sometimes could have his pass respected. He gets big chunks of yards. You've seen that with Josh Allen. You've seen it with uh, Lamar Jackson. But 54% accurate in college, I do not expect him to develop for quite some time, if ever. You know, he's at more of a tight end to me. They brought in Gardner Minshew, hopefully to reserve the seat for Richardson. But, I mean, throwing to Michael Pittman, Jelani Woods, that, that's all he really has there. You know, the, uh, Jonathan Taylor, of course, is there, and I feel bad for him. But they have a terrible offensive line. They just have bad leadership and a broken up defense. If, if there's any upside to this team, it's the only it's coming from the running back. It's coming from Jonathan Taylor. And the dude is massively talented, but he's coming back from injury. And an easier schedule for 2023 also helps as well. Those at-large games, of course, against uh, New England, the Rams, and Las Vegas hopefully will be good. Uh, the Rams just depends upon which Rams you're going to get. And New England was a third place team and that's on a neutral site. Las Vegas is at home. So that's a positive, but I just don't think that this team has many wins in them. And I just think that they're going to be in complete rebuild mode. It's good that they do only have seven true away games due to the, just like the Jaguars had it, the neutral game in Germany for them. But at the same time, I'm just not buying this team. I'm taking the under. I'm taking under 6.5 wins. It's juiced to the over. So you're going to get at about plus 110. I think there's a definitely a chance this team could be the worst in the NFL and with the lowest wins. Unfortunately, their schedule is a lot easier than other teams like Arizona. Um, other teams like the Rams. Teams like Carolina. You know, just being that that schedule is so easy, it's hard to bet them to be the worst team, but I'm sure as heck not far from it. So we're going to just take their under 6.5 wins at plus 110 for one start. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed the AFC South preview. I should finish both the AFC East and the AFC West next week, and we'll be moving into some college football in the very near future. Now, it's time for a little UFC on ESPN. We have Marvin Vittori versus Jared Hananier. And I wrote, I, I kept 
the top part of this card. Not completely, but I went kind of a first run through on these fighters. Now, Cannoneer has been a fantastic fighter. Just hasn't been quite good enough to take the uh, championship. He's 16 and 6. He lost to Izzy in a unanimous decision. I thought he fought Izzy very well. Just couldn't get close in on the distance with him. He's lost to Robert Whitaker in a unanimous decision, but he's beaten all the like borderline tier one, tier two guys like Sean, uh, Sean Strickland. He got a split decision against Strickland. Uh, Derek Brunson. Brunson got KO'd in the second. He's beaten Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, he's beaten Jack Hermanson, who is an extremely talented fighter. So it, it, he's just kind of the lower tier one guy. But not not so different with Marvin Vittori. Um, Marvin Vittori lost the same two dudes, Robert Whitaker by unanimous decision, and Israel Israel Adesanya as well. You know, back in uh, 2021, I actually thought Vittori fought extremely well against Izzy, and I thought Vittori, um, I, I I thought some scorecards could have had Vittori win, being that he did have Izzy on the ground. It's just, it just he just looked bad in that fight. But he beat Paulo Costa, Kevin Holland, Jack Hermanson. so he has a bunch of other great fights that he's won. But he's a wrestler, right? he's kind of got that, well, kind of like that dopey look to him. <laughs> I hate to like insult him, but seriously, you know, he looks like he's just all fighter, not exactly a scholarly guy. <laughs> I, I would think that maybe even Cannoneer is a little bit more, I guess, smarter in the ring. But Vittori is just, he can take a punch. He doesn't get submitted because he is that wrestler. He has zero KOs against him, zero submissions, and six decisions, you know? So it kind of goes down to what's going to happen in the fight. And when Vittori gets kind of messed up, he he ends up getting to the ground. You know, he goes to the ground. His significant strikes are pretty close to Cannoneers, 4.38. Cannoneers is four. Cannoneers is a little bit more accurate. They both absorb about the same amount. Their defense is about the same, around 60% uh, for strikes. But for grappling, it's all really Marvin. 1.77 takedown average, 0.17 for Cannoneer. The takedown accuracy, 44% for Marvin, 25% for Cannoneer. Cannoneer is going to try to win this standing. Now, Cannoneer did beat somebody standing recently that would worry me a little bit in this situation. Because uh, when Cannoneer fought Derek Brunson, I just thought, Brunson could possibly use his wrestling in this situation, but Cannoneer's just a little bit bigger than Brunson, and Brunson eventually just gassed out and got you know KO'd, gassed out quick. But Marvin Vittori doesn't gas out. He's a he's a world class wrestler, and I think because of that, Vittori is going to be able to last and kind of turn the tide on Cannoneer. There's going to be a lot of ground and pound. I think this thing actually does go to decision. Um, Cannoneer doesn't exactly lose a lot of fights. He's been knocked out twice. He's never been subbed. He's lost in four decisions. But looking at Vittori, he doesn't knock out a ton of people either. It's two KOs, nine submissions, eight decisions. I think the look that you want, take Vittori, 
maybe minus 115, but I would also sprinkle a little bit on Vittori by decision because, as I said, I, I'm just not buying the fact that he can knock out Cannoneer and Cannoneer just does not get subbed. And you're going to get a pretty good price. Um, Vittori, right now he's minus 115 on Bet Online. Vittori by points is plus 150. Not a huge difference. I, I would prefer minus 115 in this situation, but if you want to get cute, you can uh, put a little bit, maybe like a, a quarter of the size of your bet on Vittori by the points just to try to eat up some of that juice at minus 115. So we'll, do, we'll go Vittori uh, at minus 115 for 1.5 stars. It's just swimming with bow-legged women. Next fight that we're going to cover, Armand Sarukin versus Joaquim Silva. And this is just ridiculous price. Uh, Sarukin's minus 1,000. Silva's plus 650. Sarukin's 19-3. Silva's 12-4. I hate situations where I think there's an overprice and I won't bet the dog because this is it. I think Sarukin is a top tier one fighter in the very stacked lightweight class of 155. You know, Silva's done plenty of damage himself. He's won a bunch in a row in the lower federations, got to the UFC, beat some bums. Then he fights uh, Vince Pichel and loses by decision. He beats Jerry Gordon, punched him out, but then loses to Nasrat Hakprast, loses to Ricky Glenn. <laughs> you know, seriously get knocked out by Ricky Glenn. Then he beats Jesse Ronson. I just I just think Sarukin's just going to take him down and pound him on the ground. Am I laying minus 1,000? No. But I am considering two other bets. I'm considering Sarukin round one at plus 175. And I'm considering Sarukin by KL. I just don't think Silva's going to get submitted. He hasn't been submitted yet, but I think Sarukin's just so good on the ground. The ground and pound's eventually going to catch up to uh, Silva. Right? So that's what I'm looking at, but I'm not sure if I'm even going to bet it here. Um, you know, you're kind of taking a prop and you're laying juice on a prop. Not always my favorite thing, especially when I see that the prop price is juiced because the fight is juiced at minus 1,000. So um, I can see Armand, you know, winning by decision even. I can see Silva possibly lasting. Now, Silva hasn't went the distance in a lot of fights, but Silva hasn't fought somebody as good as Sarukin, you know. Silva's fought 15 times, only went the distance three times, two wins and one loss. You know, I could see that too. So I'm going to I'm gonna think a little bit more about this. Next quick fight. Uh, I just want to say the Armand Petrosian versus Christian Duncan. This fight looks so tough for me to cap. Duncan's the favorite. Duncan's got a very good record at 8-0. He's an English fighter. Uh, he looks like he's really pounding people early, but now he's stepping up in class against Armand Sarukin, who's 8-2. and two, And Sarukin's done some dangerous stuff. I, I personally would probably line this fight the 8-0 guy, probably minus 130. I've seen Petrosian make some stupid mistakes. It's minus 155, so plus 130 for Sarukin, so literally be a coin flip for me, taking the 130. So really nothing for me right now unless these lines move a little bit more significantly than it is right now. Uh, Pat Sabatini versus Lucas Almeida. I almost got to Lucas Almeida at plus 155, but he's got some pretty bad losses, and Sabatini's coming off a loss. Now, Almeida's a lot taller than him, 5'11 to 5'8. 
The reach is only about a one inch difference with Almeida being longer. Almeida's got the significant strike 6.6 to 1.67, but Pat 17 is going to keep it on the ground as much as he can. You know, he's going to be taking down Almeida, and that's why you see minus 180. And Almeida's just not nearly as experienced. So uh, Sabatini should win this fight. Minus 180, not exactly the kind of price I want to lay. The next fight, Manuel Torres versus Nicolas Mata. Here's the deal with Torres. I like him, and I think he's going to definitely beat Mata. Torres is a Mexican, 13-2. and two. Mata is uh, Brazilian, 13-4. and four. Torres minus 160. So looking at the, some of the stats in this fight, it really, really goes towards uh, Torres, in my opinion. The, these fighters are similar in experience. Torres slightly taller, 5'10 to 5'9. Torres obviously has to uh, cut some weight here. He was heavier earlier. His reach is more 73.5 inches. Um, his leg reach 41 inches to 37. Torres wins a lot by KO. He wins a lot by sub and rarely wins by decision. He's only went to decision a very few times, actually. 8% of his wins, let's just say, are by decision. And that's with 15 total fights, you know. Six KOs, six submissions, one decision. There's your 8% right there. His two, only two losses are by submission. Now, can Mata get the sub against him? No. Mata has no submissions. He's got nine KOs, zero submissions, four decisions. He's going to be fighting. He's going to be scrapping. Mata's lost to Jim Miller. Now, Jim Miller has obviously lately made an awesome push, especially with that KO. Was it two weeks ago? That was awesome. But he hasn't beaten anybody. Cameron Vandekamp beat someone in the Dana White Contender Series. Then it was just CFFC stuff, you know, Shuto Brazil stuff. You know, nothing really there. While Manuel Torres won against Frank Camacho. And that was his first UFC debut. He knocked out Camacho pretty easily in the first round. You know, Camacho isn't exactly a top-tier fighter or anything. As a matter of fact, I think Camacho might be completely out of the UFC. But you got to like how he has uh, improved in all his fights Literally going all the way back to 2018, there's about eight or nine fights have ended in the first round. So looking at the round props on this one, or actually just the total, the under is minus 140. <laughs> under one and a half minus 140. So it's already pretty heavily juiced that this fight is not going too far. Win inside the distance, Manuel Torres is plus 125 to win inside the distance right now. It might even be better when some other books pop with some of these props. This is the earlier stuff on Bet Online as I'm doing this a day early. So those are what I'm looking at. Maybe Torres could be a good parlay leg also at the minus 160. So statistically, Torres, 10.5 significant strikes landed per minute. Now that's only showing a few of the UFC fights, but only 3.37 for Nicholas Mata in the same situation. You know, grappling style. Both haven't had fierced a lot of big grapplers here in the UFC, so there's not a lot of stats there. But you can just tell, looking at the records itself, you know that Mata is just not a grappler. You know, Torres has a significant advantage on the ground. He has six submissions, while Mata's got zero. You know, so Torres has the volume. He has the ground game. This should be a simple win for him, unless he doesn't completely screw it up so i'm going with manuel torres for sure 
at the minus 160 for 1.5 stars, but I am going to consider him inside the distance as well at plus 125. The final fight of the main card, Nicholas Dalby versus Muslim Salikov. I'm kind of looking at Dalby a little bit. He's plus 170, Muslim's minus 200. Both are older fighters. Um, Muslim's 39 years old, and this is the middleweight or welterweight class of uh, 170. And uh, Dalby is 38 years old, born in 1984 at 170. Six KOs, four submissions, 11 decisions. But Dalby from Denmark, 24 wins and four losses. These guys kind of started their careers a little bit later in life, 2010, I guess, for Dalby. So, you know, was he 23, 24 when he first started? But he didn't really get to UFC until uh, 2015, you know. He lost a ton in a row, and then he got better and started winning and get a bunch of no contests. But Muslim himself, you know, same situation. Didn't get into the UFC until 2017. Really started his career in 2011. So these guys have kind of the same thing. Now, I think that Muslim is a proper favorite, but would I put it all the way at minus 200? Probably not. I, I, probably not. You know, he, he lost to Jingling Lee, who's an okay fighter he just beat Andre Fialo which was cool so that's probably boosted his odds a little bit that he beat Fialo but we're finding out that Fialo is a little bit overrated losing his last three fights in a row just getting KO'd to Buckley as well so Fialo after he somehow beat Cameron Vandekamp and Miguel Baeza he loses to Jake Matthews then Muslim then Buckley so yeah situation where yeah just feel like Muslim's a little too high, but probably a fight I'm going to stay away. So to recap, we're just going to take Marvin Vittori at minus 125 for 1.5 stars. Actually, minus 115 at bet online. So why don't you get it there if you still have that offshore. And then grab the Manuel Torres at the minus 155, minus 160. Try to shop around for value as well also at 1.5 stars my friends thank you so much for listening to this episode had to come out a little early this week due to the u.s open so huge thanks to patrick gates as well as brady cannon for coming on i hope you enjoy all the games this weekend make sure you enjoy all the golf for the u.s open and go get some winners